Hello and welcome to Mr. President from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. President, starring Metro Goldwyn Mayer's Edward Arnold. <laughs> Mr. President, at home in the White House. The elected leader of our people, our fellow citizen and neighbor. These are little-known stories of the men who've lived in the White House. Dramatic, exciting events in their lives that you and I so rarely hear. True human stories of Mr. President. Today's Mr. President story will begin in just a moment. But meantime, how extensive is your knowledge of our country's past presidents? For example, can you name the president who once sold all of the White House furniture? Or the president who had a habit of bathing in the canal back of the White House? There are so many colorful anecdotes about our former chief executives that it's not surprising we find the lives of American presidents so fascinating. Perhaps it's because most of us can identify ourselves with their way of life. Their private ambitions, their relationships with their wives, children, and friends are so much like our own that we often feel their stories are our stories, too. Each week, Mr. President reveals our famous leaders as they were, human beings whose desires and ambitions were much the same as yours and mine. Now, listen to today's drama and see if you can name the president upon whom today's episode is built. Now, in just a moment, Edward Arnold. Edward Arnold as Mr. President. Let's visit him in the White House. It is Sunday, and the old mansion is resting quietly after a busy week. We walk through the great doors under the presidential seal, across the foyer and down the long hall to the president's study. Oh, hello. Come in. Uh, Sit down, won't you? You know, the French writer Rousseau once said, provided a man is not mad, he can be cured of every folly but vanity. Well, once a president had the problem of trying to cure men of vanity and deal with another man's conceit. Later on, I'll tell you which president suffered such vexation at the hands of vanity, but meanwhile, you may be able to guess. When I moved into the White House, war wasn't completely strange to me, but I soon found out that sometimes even war can be overshadowed by problems arising from strange quirks of human behavior. All in all, though, things had been running pretty smoothly up to that morning when I had called a meeting of the cabinet. Oh, Miss Sarah, you're here bright and early. I didn't see you come in. Probably because I was already here when you came in, Mr. President. Uh-huh. You're looking well this morning. Miss Sarah, I'm feeling well. <laughs> My administration is accomplishing the things we set out to do, 
I have the support of the Congress, the confidence of the people, and a mighty good cabinet. What more could a president want? Peace, perhaps? Oh, well, don't you worry, Miss Sarah. We'll have peace in short order once we get an army on the scene. Oh, uh, that reminds me, sir. You haven't forgotten you called a cabinet meeting for discussion of a military problem this morning, have you? No, no. Are they ready? Yes, sir. Well, I hope they will approve my next move. They're waiting for you down the hall. Oh, then excuse me, Miss Sarah. Yes, of course. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Mr. President. Oh, keep your seats. Keep your seats, please. There's no need to stand on formality as long as the reporters aren't looking. <laughs> I know you're all busy, so I'll speak briefly and to the point. Gentlemen, we need a commander who can organize a full-scale campaign and carry it forward into the theater of operations and win. I have therefore decided to submit for your approval the name of Arthur Douglas. Yes, I've already discussed this appointment with the Secretary of War, Mr. Marcy, and I believe he's in agreement. Is that right, Bill? Well, with some reservations, sir. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that Arthur Douglas is a good soldier. But he does have certain traits that make me wonder if he's the best man for the job. I think we know what you mean, Mr. Marcy. Douglas is a pompous, vainglorious, proud man. Well, maybe he's just vain and proud enough to make sure he wins, Mr. Buckman. But he's such a visionary, Mr. President. I doubt that his advice would be worth much. Well, I'm not appointing him to give advice, but to take it and translate that advice into terms of victory. You seem pretty definite on the subject, sir. Well, Arthur Douglas is, after all, our ranking general. I see no reason to bypass him simply because he's vain. Have you any further objections to Arthur Douglas, gentlemen? Not as a soldier, sir. Very well, then. Now that I have the approval of the cabinet, I'll call Douglas in and notify him the first thing in the morning. Well, now then, gentlemen, there are several other matters, some military, some civil, which will require our immediate attention, and then we'll adjourn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And dated this day, President of the United States. Mm, there we are. Sarah, my signature to the military appropriation bill. Congress passed Without it. batting an eye, Miss Sarah, without batting an eye. And for the full amount requested. Oh, you asked Arthur Douglas to come in this morning. Oh, yes, yes. He's waiting, sir. Oh, good. Show him in, please, Miss Sarah. Yes, sir. General Douglas, the president will see you now. Thank you, Miss Sarah. Thank you very much. Mr. President? Hello, General. Sit down, won't you? Mm -hmm. Well, General, I've decided to appoint you commander-in-chief of our proposed expedition against the enemy. I should be remiss in my gratitude, Mr. President. Were I not to recognize the honor you bestow upon me? Well, uh, Congress has given us the money that has manpower in sufficient numbers. It'll be your job, sir, to organize the campaign and carry it through. <laughs> it has long been my wish to lead our gallant forces on a dominant and impressive invasion. Sir, the important thing about your entry into, uh, into the enemy territory isn't the high style in which you do it, but how quickly you do it. And the speed is of the essence. Well... We'll, of course, take time to equip and train the forces to a point where I... Well, the more time we take in preparations, the more time we give the enemy to fortify in the wild and distant territories he now holds. And let me warn you, sir, we're dealing with a primitive and uh, fanatical people. Their defeat will not be easy. <laughs> but I dare say can be accomplished now, sir. Further instructions regarding our plans will be furnished you by Secretary of War Marcy. After that, the ultimate responsibility of giving us victory will lie on your shoulders. Excuse me, 
President, but... But what, Miss Sharon? Secretary Marcy is here, sir. Did I have an appointment with him this morning? I don't remember. Well, no, there was no appointment, Mr. President, oh. but he seems terribly upset. He insists on seeing oh, you, sir. if he insists, we'd better see him. Show him, Miss Sharon. Yes, sir, right away. Come in, please, Mr. Marcy. Thank you, Miss Sir. Oh, for heaven's sake, Bill, what rain cloud did you blow in on? You look as glum as an, an empty purse. What's the trouble? I thought we'd agreed that a full-scale campaign against the enemy was to be launched at once. That's right, Bill. Then how do you explain General Douglas's latest announcement? Explain it? I haven't even heard it. Without consulting me or anyone else in the War Department, General Douglas has announced publicly that he would not be prepared to set out for the seat of war before the 1st of September. He what? Oh, see here, Bill. He, he not only bypassed you, but he bypassed me as well. That statement is in direct variance with the instructions I gave him. What's he thinking of? He's caused us no end of embarrassment in other ways, too, sir. His vanity, his tactless utterances have just about wrecked our plans to get sufficient officers. Tactless utterances? What did he say? He's been telling applicants for military positions that such positions have been created largely for Western members of our political party. Why is that? Why can't he have some sense as well as be a good soldier? He seems to forget that he's not running the war all by himself. What do you suggest? Order him to cease such unfounded statements and to proceed with the immediate prosecution of the war as he was directed to do in the first place. Gentlemen, I have called this special meeting of the cabinet to discuss some extremely important issues. You are all aware that we are at the moment about to launch a campaign and at the very heart of the enemy homeland. In view of this, I have been giving some very serious thought to the strategy involving the invasion. Bill Marcy and I are in agreement as to the point of attack. Now, I'd like you to look at this map, gentlemen. We have decided that the most likely point to launch the invasion would be here on the eastern seaboard. And we are, uh, once we have uh, captured this city and gained a foothold, it is possible that the enemy will recognize our superior strength and sue for peace. But should they continue resistance, then our armies will press inland to strike a death blow to the very heart of the enemy country, its capital. Uh, excuse me, Mr. President. Yes, Mr. Buckman. I'm sure you're aware of it, sir, but allow me to call your attention once more to the fact that there are several men in the Congress who do not favor invasion of the enemy homeland. Mr. Buckman, I was elected president of this Congress. I feel perfectly confident in touch with the duties which the Constitution has assigned to the chief executive. And it is my hope that my friends in Congress will suffer me to conduct the war as I think proper and not plan the campaigns for me. Have you no fear of the enemy armies, sir? I don't underestimate the enemy, Jim, but frankly, I'm more fearful of the priests than of the military. What? The priests? Yes, yes. It is my belief that certain designing persons high in the enemy government have convinced the priests that our armies plan to pillage their churches and overthrow their religion. If the priests harbor such beliefs... They will incite their followers to a fanatic and desperate uh, resistance. I don't see how we can do much about that aspect, sir. No, the War Department can, Mr. Marcy, but I, I think I have another idea. Oh, how can we offset? Well, gentlemen, I doubt that there's a precedent for this, but I think it's time we laid aside some of the old rules of warfare. I have therefore instructed Bishop Hughes of New York to select some prominent religious leaders in this country to accompany our invasion army. 
They will use their respective offices to assure the enemy that our country will guarantee religious freedom and kind treatment. We may not subscribe to another man's religion, but he must have no doubts that we support his right to follow it. Of course, that's the brain of that. What's this interrupting a cabinet meeting? Uh, one moment, uh, gentlemen, excuse me. What is the meaning of this? Oh, Miss Sarah. I'm awfully sorry, Mr. President, but Mr. Marcy's office just sent this over. They said it was very urgent. Oh, it's for you, Bill. Uh, here you are, sir. I yes, hope yes. that, that I... Could... It's all right, Miss Sarah. It's all right. Something serious, Bill? To reply to my last instructions to General Douglas, the ones I issued under your order, sir. Well, did he... Did we make ourselves clear? Evidently not, sir. Listen to this. He says... I have learned from you that much impatience exists in high quarters that I have not already put myself en route for the seat of war. Well, he's certainly right there. And he goes on. I am too old a soldier and have had too much special experience to place myself in the most perilous of all positions. A fire upon my rear from Washington and a fire in front from the enemy. Does he mean to infer that this he... Is the most childish piece of nonsense I've ever heard. Gentlemen, meekness and humility are not exactly qualities one seeks in a military leader. Well, Douglas certainly isn't afflicted with either. Oh, you're right, Bill. His pride and vanity we might have overlooked, even his insolence. If he could help us win the war. But this is plain insubordination, and that we, we cannot abide. Oh, I agree with that. What do you intend doing? Do? There's only one thing we can do. We have no choice but to relieve Arthur Douglas of his command at once. At a time when so much depends on action, sir? It's a pretty kettle of fish, isn't it? Now that we have our plans all made, we don't have a general to carry them out. In just a moment, we'll come back to Edward Arnold and Mr. President. This is a fictitious conversation, but it is the kind you might have heard just recently between people you know. Two men are talking. We'll call them Joe and Harry. Joe is complaining about rising prices. I tell you, Harry, he says, a dollar doesn't buy anything today. Sometimes I think, what's the use of working? And it's all the fault of this great American economic system. Well, Harry doesn't agree with Joe, but why get involved in an argument, he thinks. So Harry just says, oh, I wouldn't go that far, Joe. Of course, Harry knows he could mention that our system has brought more people a higher standard of living than any other system in the world. But Harry is afraid of speaking the plain truth, and he loses the opportunity of convincing Joe that the American economic system is unrivaled. And Joe, even if he doesn't know it, has joined the enemy's camp. As a good American, don't be afraid to speak up when you hear someone attack the American economic system. Now back to Edward Arnold and Mr. President. you figured out by now who the president was in this story. But don't forget, many presidents have had the problem of dealing with pride and vanity on the part of their generals. Later on, I'll tell you which one this was. After the removal of General Douglas, I appointed a new commander. He inaugurated a campaign against the enemy, but it wasn't successful. He proved to be the dupe of certain political connivers who had their eyes on the next election. We were getting nowhere with the war and the Congress, and the people were getting very impatient. I realized that military experience took precedence over almost any personal feelings, so I swallowed my pride and called another council with my cabinet. 
Mr. President, we just don't have adequate leadership in the field, sir. I'm aware of that, Bill. I know that the Congress and the people, yes, and even most of you still feel that Arthur Douglas is the one man who can conduct the campaign to a speedy victory. Yeah, frankly, Mr. President, I don't like him personally either, but I remind you again, he's still our ranking general, and he's the best soldier of our time. I know, I know, Bill. I've been... I've been over his record a hundred times. I've found no other to compare with it. And in view of his behavior before his removal, nothing but grim necessity could induce me to give him a second chance, but it looks like that necessity is upon us. Then we're agreed? Agreed. Arthur Douglas goes back as commander-in-chief. President, Mr. President. For heaven's sake, Miss Sarah, what's the matter? Mr. Marcy is here, sir, with good news. Ooh, really? Bill, what is it? We've just received word that General Douglas has taken the first objective. He's established a foothold on the eastern seaboard of the enemy homeland. Oh, that is excellent news. I'm glad, Mr. President. This vindicates you and your decision to reinstate him. Oh, I never had any doubts as to his military ability. But tell me, Bill, has there been any indication of surrender on the part of the enemy now that we've invaded? We haven't heard of any, sir. Oh, we will. Victory is in sight, Bill. And now it's time to begin thinking about the character of the peace. Yes, sir. And that's really going to be a problem. A problem, sir? Yes. Who will negotiate for us? Douglas may be a great general, and he's familiar with the country and the people in that part of the world. But can you imagine him negotiating a peace? (laughs) Yes, I begin to see what you mean. Well, thank goodness we're not entirely unprepared. I've anticipated this moment for some time. Miss Sarah, have N.P. Trist here to see me the first thing in the morning. N.P. Trist? Yes, you know him, Bill. Yeah, I know him. He's probably considered the most conceited man in Washington. Well, maybe so. Trist has worked in the State Department a long time. He's familiar with the enemy language, so I've decided to send him. Send him where, sir? To the headquarters of the army. We'll call him a commissioner. We'll give him authority to offer the enemy peace before a battle, during a battle, or after it's over. Ranking over General Douglas? Diplomatically, yes. Not from a military view. We'll draw up the terms of the peace here in Washington. We'll send them to Trist, and Trist will give them to Douglas. And then wait for the explosion. Oh, yes. Of course, there may be fireworks, Bill. But then we can't give Arthur Douglas the power to draw up the peace terms. I suppose you're right, sir. And I can't help thinking what may happen when Mr. Trist's conceit Bumps up against his hand. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's see what I've written. General Arthur Douglas, Field Headquarters, American Expeditionary Force, so and so. Dear sir, having this day set foot upon captured enemy territory, I beg to inform you that I've been invested with authority to arrange for suspension of hostilities. This authority has been given me by the War Department. If the moment arrives when I shall deem it best to ask that all shooting cease, I shall expect your cooperation. Respectfully, N.P. Trist, Commissioner. Orderly. Orderly. Yes, sir? I wish this message dispatched immediately to Army Headquarters and placed personally in the hands of General Arthur Douglas. (laughs) 
He begs to inform me, does he? Well, I won't do it. He will tell me when hostilities shall cease. Sergeant. Sergeant Collins. Yes, sir. Message, Sergeant. Urgent. You ready? Yes, sir. Go ahead. My dear... No. No, make it Mr. Trist, sir. Mr. Trist, sir. I see that the Secretary of War proposes to degrade me by requiring that I, the commander of this army, shall defer to you the question of continuing hostilities. In the heart of this hostile country from which it would be impossible to withdraw this army without loss of probably half of its members, this army must take military security for its own safety. Hence, the question of an armistice is a military question, and unless you are clothed with military military rank rank over me, under the circumstances, I shall demand that in your negotiations with the enemy, you refer the matter of armistice to me. Signed, General Arthur Douglas. Why, that stupid peacock. This man is the greatest imbecile I've ever encountered. Orderly. Yes, sir? A message to General Douglas. Sir, you have misapprehended the purpose of my message. Your fancy and over-cultivated imagination would make it appear that there is an intention to interfere with proper military functions. Such is not the case. I am here to arrange a peace. The terms of that peace I am enclosing in this letter. You are hereby ordered to dispatch these terms to the enemy at once. Any man of plain, unsophisticated common sense would understand the course determined by our government regarding the suspension of hostilities is right and proper. Is it your belief, Commissioner, that I am to be deprived of any voice in agreeing to the terms of peace with the enemy? Am I to bow to your judgment on matters purely military? I will cheerfully obey direct orders from the President, but not those of a, a clerk out of the State Department. And what's more, I intend to notify Washington as quickly as possible. You say you just received this from General Douglas, Mr. Marcy? Just now, Mr. President. Uh, Must we be forever saddled with emotional neurotics charged with carrying out our affairs? I understand a bit of correspondence has been going on between Trist and Douglas ever since Trist's appointment. Tell me, who are they fighting, each other or the enemy? Douglas has even refused to transmit Mr. Buckman's note to the enemy authorities. You mean the enemy has not yet been informed of our terms? That's my understanding, sir. Oh, very well, Mr. Marcy. Prepare a dispatch to General Douglas, rebuke him for insubordination, and tell him to give our peace terms to the enemy at once. Order him to give us an immediate answer. Yes, sir. He might be removed from command and court-martialed. I'll delay action until we receive his reply. have our answer from General Douglas. Yes? He requests that you remove him from the command. He what? Jim Buckman and I have decided that's probably the best thing to do. You've decided? Well, I haven't decided. But I understood that when we talked last, you said he should be removed. Well, I've changed my mind. Changed your mind? Yes, I changed my mind once before about Douglas, and I was right that time. I hope you're right this time. Mm, It's true. These men have written bitter and foolish letters to each other, but... Between them, our orders have been disregarded. Because of their controversy, the golden moment for concluding peace may have passed. I know, I know. But if we let Douglas resign now, it would be to admit the truth of the charges. And that I will not do. What then? Write the strongest notes you can. Send them to both Trist and uh, Douglas and tell them to obey orders. Yes, Mr. President. Tell Trist that so far as the enemy uh, government is concerned... He is simply the bearer of a dispatch for delivery into the hands of General Douglas. 
In all other respects, his functions are to be purely diplomatic, and it is no part of his duty to discipline or supervise the commander. I'll make it clear to him. And tell Douglas that this government has given him no cause for offense. Tell him we deny the charges he makes and that I order him to stay at his post and uphold his duty as a soldier and a servant of this government. His request for removal is hereby denied. Yes, sir. If that doesn't straighten out these two schoolboys, then I'll have to find stronger methods, that's all. Yes, come in. Mr. Trist? Yes. Sergeant Collins, attached to the staff of General Douglas headquarters, sir. General Douglas? He's had word of your sickness, sir. He begs to offer his wishes for your quick recovery and send you this package and this note. Hey, well, a package, note. Let me see it. My dear sir, looking through my stores, I find a box of guava marmalade, which perhaps your physician may not consider improper as part of your diet. Yours very sincerely, Arthur Douglas. Well, the good general must be more kind-hearted man than I imagined. He seemed much concerned over your health, sir. Sergeant, please give the general my sincere thanks. Tell him it affords me the greatest of pleasure to accept his gesture of good feeling. <laughs> it's certainly a remarkable turn of events, sir. And you say they've become fast friends, eh? Yes, sir. And it all started with some guava marmalade plus the notes that Marcy sent. Well, it's had a good effect. Their efforts in working together have brought us closer to a conclusion of the campaign than we've ever been. In fact, I expect we'll be able to issue a declaration of peace in the very near future. Well, that was the idea from the beginning, wasn't it? It's good you insisted on their staying on the job. Well, at least it accomplished one thing. It made fast friends out of two bitter enemies. More than that, sir. With the prospect of a peace completely favorable to America... we've accomplished everything we set out to do. No, no, not quite, Bill. Not quite everything. There are two things we didn't accomplish. We didn't cure Trist of his conceit or Arthur Douglas of his vanity. But as long as they've done a good job, I guess we can forgive them for being human beings and having some frailties. And we can be very thankful, above all, that they put their country above everything else. You've probably figured out by now who I was when all that happened. It really did happen, you know, and I'll tell you the answer in just a moment. When the greatest story ever told was first presented on ABC, the sponsor decided that the commercials for his product be eliminated, that a simple mention of the name was sufficient identification. This was the first time that the sponsor of a major program series had decided to devote full air time to the program itself. The reason for this move was made clear. Of such unusual and dramatic material was the greatest story ever told that a commercial message would have interfered with the public service purpose of the program. The teachings of the man who lived the greatest life ever lived is the subject for every story on The Greatest Story Ever Told. So don't miss this truly great program, The Greatest Story Ever Told, when it's heard every Sunday evening over most of these same ABC stations. Now, here again is Edward Arnold. The time of our story was 1846 and 7. 
And the president who found that a man can be cured of every folly except vanity was James K. Polk. The vain general whom we called Arthur Douglas was Winfield Scott. President Polk was instrumental in the prosecution of our war with Mexico, which ended in the signing of the treaty which gave the United States the territory of California, Arizona, and New Mexico. Come and see me again next week, won't you? I'll have another story for you about Mr. President that I'm sure you will enjoy. Goodbye. Edward Arnold appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor picture The Three Musketeers, starring Lana Turner, Gene Kelly, and June Allison. Mr. President was created by Robert G. Jennings. It was produced and directed by Leonard Reed. This story by Dwight Hauser was suggested by incidents in the life of President James K. Polk. Music was composed by Basil Adler. sure to listen again next week when the American Broadcasting Company and its affiliated stations bring you Edward Arnold with another interesting and factual story of Mr. President. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.